0: Good news, church. Jesus is born. Amen. And I love how the songs that we've done today, both old songs and new Christmas songs, all point toward different aspects about what the birth of Jesus means for us. I love that video and selected that one as well as the one that we watched last week uh, to help highlight some of the very specific things that we need to look forward to uh, each Christmas. And we need to celebrate as we think about the birth of Christ. Um, if you're just visiting with us, we are in a series over four weeks on Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Today we're going to continue in that series. The most, one of the most famous Christmas passages in the Old Testament. 700 years before we celebrated the first Christmas, the prophet Isaiah spoke some words to a people who were walking in great darkness. They were walking in spiritual darkness, physical darkness, emotional darkness, political darkness. The people of Israel were walking in darkness in every way in 700 BC. And to that people of God, the prophet Isaiah said these words in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. And to a people who were oppressed and depressed, and to a people who were in darkness, to a people whose national identity and religious identity was strongly in jeopardy, through the prophet Isaiah, God gives words of hope. And there were words that that people would have expected in that day. They would have expected certain things about the one that would bring them hope. What they didn't expect is the words of Isaiah 9-6. For to us, a child is born... To us, a son is given. That's a prophecy that will be fulfilled 700 years later in the person of Jesus. And it says this, Isaiah speaks these words about the son who is to come. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Those were Isaiah's prophecy of hope. And people in that day expected a Messiah, a ruler, a Savior to come and to take them out of their political darkness into political light. Out of their religious darkness into religious light. Out of their emotional and physical darkness into light. What they didn't expect was to have to wait 700 years. 700 years after Isaiah prophesied those words, a baby was born. A baby was born in a tiny, obscure little town to an unwed, teenaged, virgin girl. That young lady and her espoused husband, who wasn't married to her yet, used a cave as a hospital room. Use a, a bassinet, a, a manger, an animal feeding trough as a bassinet. That might not mean much to most of us. But if you've given birth, moms, a cave for a hospital room, right? Now, maybe some of you gave birth up at Good Sam. I'll just leave it where it's at. A cave for a hospital room, Right? An animal feeding trough. And here's the thing. It's like, though the manger is so cute. It's so adorable. It's so pretty. There's like, hey, that's probably good on a baby, right? But this was anything that they would not have, and everything that they would have not have expected. That little baby was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 9-6, as well as all of the other, and would be the, the fulfillment of all of those hundreds of messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. That baby was and is, to this day, the hope of the world. They would refer to him as Emmanuel, which means God with us. And per the instructions that the angel Gabriel gave to his mother, They would name him Jesus. Only Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Only Jesus is the mighty God. Only Jesus is the everlasting father and only Jesus is the prince of peace. Only Jesus fulfills that prophecy. He fulfilled it differently than those people in that day were anticipating it. And sometimes Jesus is very different than what we would anticipate him to be today. But as we look today at the mighty God, we will see again how Jesus and only Jesus can fulfill what Isaiah prophesied. Now last week we looked at the wonderful counselor, Jesus as wonderful counselor, and said, as wonderful counselor, Jesus was and is the absolute wisdom of God. And we said when we experience Jesus as the wonderful counselor, it should leave us in a sense of awe and wonder. Today we'll experience Jesus as the mighty God. And like I did last week, this will be more of a thematic approach. And so I'm going to talk for a minute about what it means that he was mighty God, just what that term mighty God means. Then we're going to go to the New Testament and look at some different texts of Scripture to show specifically how Jesus revealed himself as the mighty God. So let's talk about mighty for a minute. The phrase mighty God in Isaiah 9.6, when you think of something mighty, you think of something powerful, right? Right? Something strong, strength, someone or something that is capable, awe-inspiring, majestic. I love Mount Rainier in the winter. The three or four days you can see Mount Rainier in the winter is amazing, isn't it? If you go up there on a sunny day, especially in the winter, and it's completely snow-covered, and you're there, and you're walking around, it's majestic. And we would say, that is a mighty sight to behold, right? Some people talk about their favorite sports team as the mighty dot, dot, dot. Now, here in Seattle, we don't really have that problem, so that's okay, right? But the mighty whatever sports team. Some people will talk about, you know, the mighty UFC fighter, the mighty boxer, the mighty... But it's always about power. It's always about strength. It's always about capability. In Jesus' day, there was something called the mighty Roman Empire, With its military might and its military strength. And that was for Jewish people part of the problem. But might always denoted strength. Whether it was a kingdom or an empire. Whether it was a ruler. Whether it was a military leader. It always denoted power and strength. And it's fun around here at this church that we have lots of little babies. And I don't know about you, but when I look at a little baby, I don't think like power and strength and majesty right and we can we can mix these up and so I want that phrase that idea in your mind as we think about for unto us a child is born a son is given he's going to be the mighty god and we're going to see how Jesus fulfills that idea of mighty god it's interesting because uh, as you read the old testament is originally written in hebrew and this phrase mighty god the literal hebrew trans- translation of mighty god is god warrior The idea of God being a mighty warrior. Actually, a couple passages of Scripture will help us understand that. And again, I'll put some text on the screen this morning as we walk through it uh, to keep us focused together. So here's what a couple Old Testament passages say about God is mighty. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome God. Think about the connotations of God being awesome and mighty and great and powerful one of the things that set, set monotheism in that day apart from polytheism of all the different varieties, and if you read, uh, if you're into Greek gods and those kinds of things, or Egyptian mythology, you realize the things that set God, Yahweh, the God of gods apart, was that there was one God. There wasn't just a variety of gods for a variety of different things. That there was one God, and he ruled all gods because he was mighty and the awesome God. And Psalm says it like this, Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. And we need to take that idea and and place that on our understanding of this Son who would come, who would be the mighty God. For some of us, we could have a weak or anemic understanding of Jesus. We only know the Jesus of the Gospels. We know the Jesus of the nativity scene. And maybe we know Jesus who did some nice teaching and performed some miracles and was really kind to people. We know the Jesus that we've seen in those movies. His hair seems a lot more curly than what it would have in that day. Like, how did they have that kind of hair product for Jesus to have that nice of hair, right? Jesus in the movies has hair that some of you ladies would be like, man, I'd die to have his hair, right? But we have this anemic understanding of Jesus because we only have this, like, account. We've read about Jesus in the Gospels, and that's kind of all we know. And what Isaiah does, and as we understand Jesus fulfilling this prophecy, he gives us a picture right here of a mighty God. A strong, powerful, awesome, mighty God. I heard a pastor say one time, nobody would worship the Jesus of most of those Jesus movies because nobody's going to worship a God that you can beat up. And when you see that guy, you're like, he looks a little too effeminate. He looks a little bit too kind, and he always speaks like real gently with a lisp. And I don't know about you, but I'm not excited about worshiping a God that I could probably take out in a fight. Jesus is the mighty God. And as we see in Scripture today, man, we're going to get and understand that this makes all the difference in the world as to how we understand Jesus, which makes all the difference in the world as to how we trust Jesus. Can I trust Jesus with my life? Can I trust Jesus with my future? And so as we dig into these texts this morning... I want you to understand what the New Testament has to say about how Jesus revealed himself to be the mighty God. And I'm going to give you six different ways in the, Old, in the New Testament that Jesus revealed himself to be mighty God. But, but before we do that, I want to quote a guy that most of you have probably never heard of. How many of you have heard of a man named John Calvin? Probably not, right? Oh, man. Woo, okay. So Calvin had a lot of good stuff to say about the Reformation, but he also had a lot of good stuff to say about the Old Testament. He in a great commentary on Isaiah 9. and He says this about this phrase. He says, if we find in Christ nothing but flesh and nature of man, our glorying will be foolish and vain, and our hope will rest on an uncertain and insecure foundation. Stop there. If Jesus is just a man, and that's all we understand of him, if all I have is the Jesus of the Gospels and the first part of the Gospels without the the crucifixion and resurrection, and that's all we understand of Jesus, we don't have much hope. We're wasting a lot of time. There's not a lot for us to put our hope and our faith and our trust in. But Calvin goes on and says, But if he shows himself to be to us God and the mighty God, we may now rely on him with safety. And as I talk through these things, and we just look at some texts from the New Testament about Jesus as the mighty God, I want you to know that this has all the bearing in the world for those of us who call ourselves Christians on how we trust Jesus, how we rely on Jesus, what it means to give Jesus our future and put our hope and our faith in him. So again, I'll give you six different ones. Passages will be on the screen. And the first of those is that we'll see that Jesus revealed himself as the mighty God in creation. The mighty God in creation. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And this is the New Testament account of Genesis chapter 1, if you're not familiar with that. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Pop quiz, you ready? Who is the Word? And His name is? Thank you. You passed. Two for two, 100%. There'll be a prize afterwards. It's coffee. You're welcome. The donuts are all gone. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Again, a truncated Christology only understands God the Son as the incarnate Jesus, right? God the Son was God the Son before he became was given the name Jesus. Okay? God the Son is pre-existent. This is this is Christology 101. Pre-existent. He existed with God in the beginning. He is was and always will be God. When he came at his first advent, at the first Christmas that we hear about in Matthew and we hear about in Luke, he was given the name Jesus. But I need you to see and understand the pre-existent Christ, that Jesus was there at the beginning. He's there throughout the Old Testament. He shows up in different ways and different times and different places. And that's important for us to get a full picture of who Jesus really is. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. That's really important because for some people, they see like God the Father was the one who was doing all the creation work. And God the Son was just waiting until halftime to get in, right? He was just waiting until the New Testament. He's on the bench. He's going to get in at some point. And then the New Testament happens and the good stuff happens. And then Jesus gets in the game. Jesus has always been in the game. God the Son has always been in the game. And it's important for us to understand, and even in developing a a Trinitarian theology, believing that there is one God and He exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three of them show up right at the beginning. That God was there and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and the Word was God and was there in the beginning. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's Trinitarian Orthodox theology. And then it says, in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What did Isaiah 9-2 say? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And John picks up that motif and carries it out. Later in John's Gospel, Jesus calls himself, I am the what? The light of the world. There's only light found in one. There's only spiritual light and spiritual life found in Jesus. More than just a good moral teacher, more than just a man who thought he was God but wasn't really God, he was the mighty God in creation. And it gets even better than that, because not only was he active in creation, not only did he show himself to be the mighty God in creation, but he also showed himself to be the mighty God and continues to in sustaining all things. Watch with these passages, and and Colossians chapter 1 and 2 have a lot to say about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. That means when we saw Jesus, you saw something of God. That all the godness of God resided in Jesus. It says he was the firstborn of all creation. And some people, like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses especially, like grab that and say, like, see, Jesus was kind of like a sub-God. There was God and then there was Jesus who was sub-God and he worked his way up to be God, but he was just kind of like next on the tier of God's. When you see firstborn, here's what it's talking about. It's talking about that he has a priority of position over all the rest. To be the firstborn just meant that you had the priority, that you were in a position of leadership, of over the rest. So when it says that he was the firstborn, he's over all of creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. And think about that. That Jesus is involved in creating all things. It doesn't mean that he created sin. We won't get into that. But that he created all things, which means that he is in control of all things. I'll tell you what happened to me the first service. I preach and I don't have a ton of notes, and so sometimes it goes off the rails. And I almost went off the rails because I almost quoted Carrie Underwood in church. My daughters are here, they're embarrassed already. Right? You got this Jesus, take the wheel. Remember that song, right? Guys, his hands have always been on the wheel, right? The only reason that we're not just completely gone is that Jesus' hands have always, it's not Jesus take the wheel, he's already got the wheel. Remember the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot? I saw somebody, if God is your co-pilot, you better switch seats, Right? (laughs) right? Yeah, because he's, Over all things, this is all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You really want to have the wheel? I don't want the wheel. Jesus, take the wheel. It's all yours, man, right? Verse 19 says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in chapter 2, verse 9, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And Paul was writing to a group of people who were struggling to understand who Jesus was uh, in relation to some heresies that they had heard in that day. And he's emphasizing that he is fully God, fully man. That all the deity, of all the godness of God resided in the physical person of Jesus. All things. There's another text that's even as important in Hebrews. It talks about the sustaining of all things. He says this long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, men like Isaiah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. The God, the Son, reveals God to us, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The writer of Hebrews is saying the same thing that Paul said in Colossians, that Jesus is God, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Some of you are astronomy buffs, like to dabble in astronomy. Some of you are astrology buffs, and we got to talk about that a different day. But some of you are astronomy people. And you realize that they talk about like if, we, if something just goes a tiny bit sideways, we're all fried, right? Like if something happens, if we get a tiny bit closer to the sun. That's a scientific definition, I'm told. A tiny bit closer to the sun, we're all fried. If we get a little tiny bit further from the sun, we're all frozen, right? That Jesus is holding the universe together by the word of his power. And scientists are like, yeah, but we don't know how it's happening. Or yeah, here's how it's happening. I got an idea. And it's an easier science test. Here's what the Bible says that Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. I don't know about you, but that's a that's a God I can get behind. Right? That's a God I can worship and serve. That's a God I can get excited about. That's a God I can trust my future to. That's Jesus, the mighty God in sustaining all things. He showed himself to be the mighty God in his incarnation. We talk about the incarnation, we're talking about when God became man in the person of Jesus. And without putting all the different passages up there, understand that the virgin birth itself was, again, meant to show us this is different. This is unlike anything else. This is of God, not of man. This is not just another person. This is not just another world figure. This is different than everything else. This is God. And then as Jesus did his earthly life, and we have the recorded miracles that Jesus has, Jesus did miracles over nature, the physical world, the unseen realm, sickness, and death. And he did it to show that he's God over all of those things. Okay, church, I need you to know that, that miracles weren't, I talked to somebody about this after the first service, that, that miracles weren't Jesus saying, like, this is what I'm doing by the power of the Holy Spirit, and this is what you can do too if you just believe enough. Like, that's just, that's not what scripture teaches. That what the miracles were was Jesus' business card. And as Jesus came in human flesh, he's handing out his business. Like, I'm different. I'm God. When I'm saying that I'm here to save you from your sins, like, here's my business card. These are my credentials. You see this? And when other people, by the way, like, just right around the time of Jesus, did miracles, they did them in Jesus' name. They were passing out his business card, not their own. Okay? And so it's important to understand that Jesus was showing himself to be the mighty God. When he calmed the sea on at least two separate occasions, he's saying, I'm God over the sea. In their day, the sea was a place in, in Jewish mythology and Greek mythology. The sea is a place where like, the gods did battle with each other. And Jesus calms the sea. He says, I'm God over all of this. He was God over the physical world. When he said to his disciples to go pass out those loaves, and they went and they did that. That wasn't just a cool, like, lunchable magic trick, right? I got one lunchable, and we're going to pass it out and feed, like, 20,000 people. Wow, that's a really cool lunchable. Jesus is saying, I'm God over the physical world. When he was casting out demons, when he was reading people's minds and telling them things about themselves that only God would know, he was showing himself to be God over the unseen realm. When he healed people from sickness, it wasn't even for them as much as it was for him. And when he rose people, resuscitated people, brought them back to life, it was all him saying, I am the mighty God. See, Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus is the healer. And in those ways, he was showing himself to be that, showing himself to be the mighty God. The climax of Jesus' revelation of mighty God happened while he was on earth, didn't it? It's called his resurrection. Jesus revealed himself to be the mighty God in his resurrection. Romans 1, 4 says this, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. I'll say it a little bit differently. If we don't have Easter, we don't need Christmas, right? Right? that we celebrate Christmas in the way that we do because we know about Easter. We know about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's when he showed himself to be the mighty God. No one else in human history, no other leader that I'm aware of, even claims to have done that. Right? That Jesus was and is alone the Son of God and showed himself to be the mighty God. If you can rise from the dead, you're pretty strong. You're pretty majestic. You're pretty powerful, right? The son of God with power. Then in his resurrection, he showed himself to be the mighty God in victory. And This is where we get really excited. I told the first service, if I start jumping up and down a little bit, you know, feel free to do the same thing as well. I can really see that's going to happen. Now look, the first service, they were real chill. You guys are like, you know, this is like a, this is like this. Two-servicing is like a mullet, by the way. This isn't, in my, this isn't in my notes. It's business in the front, party in the back. Right? Business first, party in the... You guys are the party, end of the mullet. So let's go. Wake up. Come on. There we go. I almost got a clap out of that one. <laughs> hey, two... All right, all right. You're like, I don't know how I feel about being called a mullet. I'll have to reflect on that. It's in the sermon supplement. The victory of Jesus, though. The resurrection of Jesus showed us the victory of Jesus. Hebrews says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that means since we are flesh and blood, we are people, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He became a real, live, real person. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death We're subject to lifelong slavery. There's a lot in that passage. I want you to see two words. Destroy and deliver. Jesus has victory in that he has destroyed and that he delivers. It says that he destroyed the one who has the power of death. Do you believe that Jesus, in his death and resurrection, defeated Satan? Do you believe it? Like, I think I might. Yes, like Jesus defeated Satan. Scripture's clear on that. You're like, yeah, but have you been to Vegas because, whoa, right? Yeah, we'll talk about that. Not Vegas, but we'll talk about that side of things. Because sometimes it doesn't seem like Jesus won. But Scripture is clear that Jesus has the victory. That he defeated Satan, sin, and death. Right? If not, he's just waking up. But in the resurrection that he defeated Satan and sin and death defeated the one who has the power over death, that is the devil, and to deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's all of us. Like, as people, we were subject to lifelong slavery. And some of us still live in that way. But that by defeating Satan, he's provided for our deliverance. I think some of us, again, have this Christology that sees, like, you know, Jesus and... and. Satan, as like, you know, Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader, old school Star Wars, right? They're just battling it out, and who's going to win, and I don't know, and I've seen it before, but I'm still kind of in- interested. That's bad theology. Good movie. Bad theology, right? That Jesus has provided, he- he's defeated, and he's delivered. There's another text. and this is a good one. And, and I didn't even have this one in until last night. It's a bonus material. But I'm sitting there and I'm going back through it. And then I start quoting. You guys, this is why we memorize scripture, right? Because like, that way, as you're like thinking about things, then the Lord can bring these things back to your mind. And I'm sitting there going through this. And then I'm like, yeah, but man. And then this other verse that started coming to my mind. You know, 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in what? Victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Doesn't it feel like death has some victory sometimes? Physical death, spiritual death. It feels like death is like just winning sometimes. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory on our own power? Like, if we just fight hard enough? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to explain to you real quickly, like, how does the victory of Jesus work in our lives? And I'll tell you and i've said this before and i want to be clear like i didn't originate this but i've heard it in multiple places and i think it's really helpful for us to understand how does victory work in the christian life jesus has given us victory in three ways over sin in three ways and i'll give them to you and they'll all start with the letter p you're welcome right first of all he's given us freedom over the penalty of sin When Jesus died and rose again, defeated Satan, sin, and death, he made it possible for us to place our faith in him as our Savior. And at the moment that you place your faith in Christ, when I was a four-year-old boy, I went to vacation Bible school. I heard about Jesus and sin and hell and all of those things. And I came home and I talked to my parents. And my dad read John chapter 3, verse 16 to me. And I got down beside my bed and I prayed and I, I admitted that I was a sinner. And I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Now, some of you are looking at me like, as a four-year-old boy, you were a sinner, right? Yes. Some of you can't believe that I would have sinned. Well, there's someone who's here. There's someone who was here who knew me when I was four, and she'd be happy to testify later. I was a sinner far before I was four. But I, at that moment, I became a Christian, and at that moment, I was saved from the penalty of sin. Scripture is clear that the penalty of sin is Eternal condemnation and damnation in a real place called hell. That's the penalty for sin. It's eternal separation from God. And when, when, I was, when I became a Christian, I was saved from the penalty of sin. I'm going to heaven when I die. I'll spend eternity with Christ. I'm free from the penalty of sin. Scripture is also clear that there will be a day when I'll be free from the presence of sin. Right? Revelation chapter 21 lays it out very clearly. There will be no more sickness and pain and death, no more tears, no more crying. Freedom from the presence of sin. That the whole story of the Bible is actually this rescue mission and a restoration project that, that the Lord is on. And He's restoring all things. And Revelation 21 and 22 talk about the, you know, the, the end of that restoration, the final project of that restoration. And it's a life without the presence of sin. Can you imagine a life where there's no sin and no consequences of sin, right? You know, things like sickness. You know, cancer, in, in, in a way, is, is a consequence of sin. Things like divorce is a consequence of sin. Now, what I'm clearly, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that if somebody gets cancer, it's because of their sin. not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is, is that the earth, that God created all things the way that he wanted them, but because of sin, things are distorted and broken. We have things like sickness and death and divorce and struggle and poverty and injustice and all of those things because of sin. So that means when you take sin out of the picture, then those things go away. By the way, as a side note, that's why we approach things like justice and equality and all of those things from a gospel perspective. Because I can't change injustice until I change hearts with the gospel. Okay. But God has given us victory. He's given us victory over the the penalty of sin. He will give us victory over the presence of sin. But what about now in the meantime? God has given us victory in Jesus over the power of sin. Like, I don't know what you struggle with. I know what I struggle with. I know what, through the course of my life, I have struggled with and what God has given me victory over. I know the things that I still struggle with on a regular basis. I know what it feels like to be Paul in Romans 7. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I just keep on doing. And I believe that that's Paul talking about the spiritual struggle as Christians. I know that's debated. What I do know is that there is power for the Christian. There is power over sin. Now look, I've got to exercise the power. I've got to to use the power, right? I have a a human responsibility. Romans 6 is clear that he's given us power over sin, but then we are therefore to count ourselves as dead to sin, consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. And we each have a, a, a piece to play in that. But church, I want you to know that Jesus has given the victory. He's given us the victory over the penalty of sin. We have victory over the power of sin, and one day you'll have victory over the presence of sin. Does that get you excited at all? You want to sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing again? All right. One more. The mighty God in His return. The mighty God in His return. We don't just have the first advent Jesus. We have the second advent, Jesus. I read Revelation 19 a couple times, so I went a little bit further back in Revelation. Chapter 5. God gives the Apostle John a, a vision of the future and a vision of the throne room in heaven. And John records these words. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb. Pop quiz. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. Nailed it three for three. Get some more donuts. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and what? Might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard, check out who's worshiping. I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We really believe that all knees one day will be bowed to Jesus. For those who have placed their faith in Him and in humility have bowed their knees to Him, they will bow in worship. For those who have stood against Him, their knees will be bowed for them in subjection. But all knees will bow to Jesus. I'd rather be part of the first, not part of the second. Right? I'd rather bow in humility and accept Jesus, that He is God and that He gets to call the shots. Church, that's your mighty God. I know that Isaiah 9-6 looks cool in a coffee mug, especially with a good designer. But man, I hope what you see is that the wonderful counselor shows Jesus as the absolute wisdom of God and that the mighty God shows Jesus as the absolute power and strength of God. And that the absolute power and strength of God is exercised in the wisdom of God, all in the person of Jesus. And we're only halfway through this thing, amen? We've got two more weeks. Now, real quick, Let's talk about this for just a second. I'm looking at the clock. I've got plenty of time. Are we good? Because here's the question like, that's all the stuff about the mighty God. That's six really important things about Jesus as mighty God. But so what? Like, what bearing, what impact does that have on us? If you're a Christian, I want you to know that this is the bearing that it has Jesus is not just the mighty God, but He is our mighty God. He's your mighty God. That means you can trust him. That means you can rely on him. That means you can continue to place your faith in him. That means you can live for him. Jesus is the mighty God. That means he has the power to save, right? He can save you from your sins, but he can also secure you. Like some of us have lived with this idea that, like, you know, following Jesus is like playing hide and seek. It's like I'm saved and I'm lost, and I'm saved and I'm lost, and I'm saved and I'm lost. No. He has the power to secure you. You don't have to freak out and fear every time something bad happens. He has the power to secure you. He also has the power to sanctify you or help you grow. Jesus has the power to provide for you. Jesus has the power to protect you and care for you. Jesus has the power to deliver you and he has the power to heal you. But I want you to hear this. Because he's the mighty God, he gets to determine what the deliverance and what the healing looks like. That's where we get mixed up sometimes, right? We think that deliverance and healing looks like something. And we ask Jesus to live into our dream when he has a much greater dream for us. Remember the Apostle Paul? He had a physical, we think, a physical ailment of some kind. And he said, I prayed over and over that God would take it away from me. And he didn't. And remember the reason? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And sometimes we'll ask God to heal us from something or deliver us for something. and We realize he's got a better story and a better plan. But I want you to know that you can trust him because he's the mighty God. He's not just the mighty God. He's your mighty God. Ultimately, I believe that Jesus has the power to prevail over Satan and over sin and over evil and all the consequences of sickness and all those things that Jesus has the power to really restore things to the way that they are and the way that God wants them to be. Do you believe that? So like last week, as the wonderful counselor, I said when, when we experience the wonderful counselor, it, it should bring a sense of wonder to our lives. And I challenge you to wonder in the wonderful counselor. This week, the challenge that I'll end with is this. Like rest in the mighty God. Trust in the mighty God. Take some encouragement and some strength in whatever it is that you're in right now, in the mighty God. And if you're not a Christian, I would challenge you to accept Jesus as the mighty God for your salvation. Step one.